last week, uh, we talked about, in our teaching, we talked about one aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we talked about this idea of moving from consumer to follower. And I don't know how many of you were here last week, and we, we, have, we tackled a really difficult teaching of Jesus, where he said, if you want to be a follower of me, um, you got to, there's, there's not necessarily some promises, it sounds more like a threat. <laughs> you got to deny yourself, and you got to take up your cross, and you got these things, like, it's like, make it a little more inviting, a little more enticing, Jesus, but he's just laying it right out there, like this is, it's going to cost you something, and that was kind of our takeaway last Sunday, was that uh, at some point I have to decide, am I going to continue to be a consumer in relation to Jesus, or, uh, or am I going to be, truly be a follower? We said that salvation is free, it costs you nothing, but following Jesus at some point is going to cost you something. And so we talked about that, and we looked at this conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 8, where he asked this penetrating question, where he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world whatever that is to them, and forfeit their soul. And we said that whatever you give up to follow Jesus will one day be but a distant memory, It'll be, but you'll see it as an investment in the condition of your soul, that part of you that is eternal. So at the end of last week's message, I asked if you, uh, if you find yourself at a place where you are mostly content to just be a consumer, a user, and if so, is it time to take the next scary step, that intimidating step, and say, Jesus, I want to be a follower. Like, I, I understand it could cost me something, but I want to follow you. I want to be a follower and a learner. And not only do I want to learn, I want to do. So I want to, like, truly commit to this lifelong process of becoming more and more like the one I follow. Uh, to be as much like Jesus as I can. So I'm making the priority of my life to be a follower of Jesus, to make disciples, to be fully engaged in this process for life. That's kind of where we left it. So today, I want to go a little bit different direction, but I want to build on, on that from what we talked about last week, the idea that following Jesus is eventually going to cost you something. So here's the idea. Eventually along the way, we're going to run into some, as followers of Jesus, we're going to run into some competing agendas. So like what I'm after and what God's after won't look the same. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. And just to be real honest and to uh, get us on the same page, when I became a Christian, I didn't become a Christian because I loved God so much. I didn't become a Christian because I loved Jesus. I didn't become a Christian because I wanted to follow anybody. I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and actually, I think about this, it was 46 years ago uh, this month. I remember the date. It was March 27, 1977. I accepted Jesus as my Savior as a child, and I became a Christian mainly so I wouldn't go to hell. And, and I don't know if, if you can identify with that story or not, because when you think, but when you think about it, if that's your motivation, it's kind of selfish. It's self-oriented. I, I wanted to go to heaven. Uh, that sounded pretty good. Uh, but what I really wanted was not to go to hell. And so as a child, you do the math. And perhaps, like, I think for me, more than I wanted to go to heaven, I didn't want to go to hell. So I was hearing that there's a heaven and a hell. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you go to heaven. So I'm like, who's not going to do that? Like, what kind of, that is not even a decision you have to make. Like, of course, I'm going to opt for that. I mean, there, what other options are there? 
So I pretty much as a child got into this thing for me, for my benefit. It wasn't about following Jesus. Uh, we didn't really use that kind of language. It wasn't about loving anybody. It was more about loving myself and self-preservation and taking care of number one, albeit on a child's level. So before you judge me, if we went around the room, right, and we surveyed each other at some point in our faith journey, right, I'm guessing all of us have experienced this dynamic uh, in your relationship with God. So last week we called it a consumer mentality between us and God. Most of us have been there, done that. So like maybe somewhere uh, in the, your past you spent some time away from God. Maybe that's part of your story. And you came back because there was something you wanted. Maybe you wanted peace. Maybe you remembered that, oh, when I was really following Jesus, I had peace and now I don't have it. I need to return to him. So I'm like, I want that. So God, give me peace. Uh, I need peace in my life. Uh, things are out of control. Things are going in the wrong direction. I need peace. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need. Or maybe you came back to God or back to church because something in your life was in crisis. Maybe there was a problem in your marriage and you knew some people that they went to church and their marriage got fixed, like magically somehow. And you thought maybe if I go to church, it'll, I'll get my marriage fixed too. So God, give me that. Give me, give me, give me. And, or maybe you had problems like with your kids or maybe it's a financial thing. Or who knows what it was? And, uh, but all of us, if we were to tell our story, uh, there have been times or stages in our journey, and, and usually I would say especially early on, when we come to God for what we can get from God, right? Maybe your story is like mine. You came to Jesus primarily because you didn't want to go to hell. Uh, whatever that looks like, you wanted to go to heaven. That sounds like a better option. And, and this, it, it's not a bad thing, but that when that's our motivation, basically we're coming to God for what we want from God. So here's the problem with this consumer mentality. Eventually, somewhere along the way, because God is so patient, he is so incredibly patient with, with this, he doesn't kick us out of the family. He doesn't say, well, you aren't welcome here. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm not going to have a relationship with you if all you're after is an escape from hell. You know, we're not going to do that. God is incredibly patient, but eventually, if we'll stay involved in this lifelong process of following Jesus, if we'll stay engaged, eventually, somewhere along the way, we're going to discover that there's a difference between using God and following God, between using Jesus and following Jesus. There's a difference between trying to get Jesus to get in on your deal and bail you out from whatever jam you're in and fix your marriage and fix your kids and fix your parents and fix your job and fix your finances and fix all the things you need him to fix. There's a difference between using him and following him. And along the way in this ultimate adventure that is following Jesus, as long as we are pursuing him and stay involved in the process of learning and following, eventually along the way, there's going to be a defining moment or a series of defining moments where your competing agendas come head to head. Our agenda, God's agenda. And we have to make a decision. Am I in this for me? Like, am I going to continue to be a consumer to continue to treat God like some kind of cosmic vending machine? Somebody just, you know, meets my needs, meets my needs, meets my needs. Or am I willing to lay down my personal and oftentimes hidden agenda, Jesus said to deny myself, and simply follow him and say, yes, because you're God and I'm not. All throughout the New Testament, we run into people who are just like us. In fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, his disciples were kind of the same way. In fact, one day they'd just gotten into Capernaum. And they went into this house where they were staying, and Jesus noticed that they were arguing. And there's a, this kind of is our springboard for this, uh, for this topic today. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 says, They came to Capernaum, 
And when he was in the house, this is Jesus and the disciples, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So they're, so they're walking down the road. There's at least 13 of them. There's probably a lot more. There's probably more like 50 of them. There's a bunch of people following Jesus. And he notices that some of the disciples are arguing amongst themselves because not much gets by Jesus. So he turns to somebody and says, hey, what were you arguing about when you were walking out there on the road? Verse 34 says, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. It's so silly. Here they are. They're following Jesus. They're arguing, arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. And basically what that meant is, like, I think he likes me more than he likes you. Can you imagine these are adult people having this conversation? It's like, no, 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 I think he likes me more. Did you notice the other day when we did the deal, when like, he let us help with that? Remember that, that miracle? And he asked me to come help first. He asked me. He met, I think he likes me better. And so I think if, if we're talking about all the people who are following Jesus right now, I'm his favorite. It seems like I'm his go-to person. So in other words, I think I probably am the greatest. And we laugh. Here's this agenda on, on their part to become something and to use Jesus and use their relationship and their proximity to Jesus to get something, to be greatest among the disciples for a purpose, hopefully to be great in the coming kingdom as they saw it. So like, what was that about? So later in a similar situation, Peter comes to Jesus and he just asked him outright. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10. The parallel of this is in Matthew 19 and Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? What then will there be for us? In other words, what am I going to get out of this? I walked away from everything I knew. Remember, I left my boat. I left my nets. I left my father. I left my uncles. We said goodbye to that life. We've hardly seen our mothers since then. We've done a lot for you and to follow you. And this is all fine and good. But what do we get out of it? What do we get out of it? And when do we get it? What can we expect to get? Because he's just like we tend to be sometimes. He was along for the ride and following Jesus basically to get something. To get his needs met. To come away with something. Last week we called that being a consumer. On the surface it looks like following. But truthfully he was a consumer. He was in it for what he could get out of it. And he's asking what's in it for me? Well the interesting thing is at the very end of Jesus' ministry. Remember when Jesus is arrested and all the disciples realized oh, we're not getting anything out of this deal. We're not getting anything but maybe getting ourselves arrested if we hang around here. It's like, what do you get out of following Jesus? Oh, you probably get arrested. Oh, good deal. And three plus years comes crashing down around them. And you remember what they did? Remember what they did? Everyone, they took off and ran away like a bunch of chickens because all of a sudden it occurred to them, you know what? This isn't going anywhere good for us. This isn't meeting my needs. I'm not making friends. I'm not popular anymore. I have no more power and no more influence than I did three years ago. This isn't going the way that I thought it would. And they took off and they ran. And the interesting thing is, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, and he gathers his disciples together, and he gave them another chance. And eventually, in that moment after the resurrection, these guys come to grips with the fact that, you know what? following Jesus at some point in the process because it truly is life's ultimate adventure. And in following Jesus, there comes a time and place where you lay down your agenda. Eventually along the way, as you're following Jesus, you're going about your everyday life. Sometimes somewhere along the way, there's a clash of wills, a clash of agendas. In those moments, in those situations, you will be forced to ask yourself, am I following because it's helpful? Or am I following because he's God and he's worthy of my devotion? 
Am I obeying because I'm going to, it makes life better for me? I'm going to get something out of this? Or am I obeying because he's worthy of my whole life? There'll be a moment in time and there'll be an event or a series of events. There'll be circumstances where your agenda or your will will clash with what Jesus has called you to. Like where the thing you're drawn to the response that seems natural to you, the action or response that seems to make the most sense to you isn't actually in step with what Jesus has called us to as his followers. What Jesus described in all of his teaching throughout the Gospels, like in the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and throughout his ministry. And in those moments, you have to make a decision. Am I in this for me? Or am I in this because he's God and deserves my obedience and my devotion? And could it be that, that what Jesus is calling us to, while it seems counterintuitive, because I don't see how I'm going to benefit, could it be that following Jesus in this situation actually results in the people around me, the people in my circle of influence, that like if I choose to follow Jesus in this scenario, that the people whose lives touch mine would actually thrive and flourish like they benefit? Could it be that that's the point? The interesting thing is all the disciples eventually all the disciples eventually made this shift. They made this change. They eventually laid down their agendas. They literally laid down their lives. And if, if that wasn't evidence enough that they were truly followers of Jesus, cer- okay, like certainly there were some benefits, but then there were some things that didn't seem so beneficial. But they decided once and for all, I'm going to follow Jesus because of who I believe Jesus is, and he deserves my devotion. Did I say all the disciples? All except one. And his name was Judas. And Judas, unlike the rest of the disciples, was not willing to make the turn. Judas started off as immature, as selfish in his following of Jesus, as I'm sure a lot of the guys did. But unlike the rest of the disciples, something happened in Judas that he wasn't able to make the leap. He wasn't able to go the distance. And so consequently, we all know the story of Judas. I believe... Early on, Judas saw Jesus as the Messiah, maybe right up to the very end, as somebody who'd been sent by God. So remember in their minds what they thought that meant? Remember their, they had an Old Testament framework that went something like this, that God was going to send a Messiah. The Messiah is going to deliver Israel from whatever conquering empire was occupying Israel at the time. In Jesus' day, it was Rome. And after the Messiah had freed Israel from their oppressors, Israel would be a global superpower once again. So the rest of the nations of the earth would come and they would say, hey, Israel, you are the greatest and this Messiah, the Savior, what he's done, it validates that your God is the greatest of all gods. So like, that's the picture they had in mind uh, that all this would happen when God sent the Messiah. So Jesus shows up and these 12 guys, they, they, they came to believe that he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. Um, nobody could do what he did and talk the way he talked. They were sure he was the Messiah. Not from day one, but they became convinced of that. And so they knew that if they could stay close to Jesus, eventually, eventually he's going to proclaim himself king. And the world is going to acknowledge that Jesus is Israel's rightful king and Israel's going to be a great nation again and... Anybody who's close to Jesus now is going to be right up there at the top when he throws the Romans out and becomes king because the closer you are to the king, the more powerful you are, right? So they're biding their time and they're hanging out and they're waiting and they're starting to wonder, when is the kingdom going to come? 
you're always talking about kingdom, Jesus. Like, when is it going to come? Like, is now the time? Is this the week? Is this it? Like, when is the kingdom going to come? You're always talking about kingdom this and kingdom that, but we're walking around here in the same old worn out, dirty robes, basically in poverty. When is the kingdom going to come? And that's how Judas saw Jesus. And he saw that the greatest way to leverage his life and his time was to hang out with the one who would soon be king. Now, admittedly, there were some problems with Jesus because Jesus didn't really seem to hate the Romans enough. (laughs) Judas thought he should have hated the Romans a whole lot more. I think the rest of the disciples probably would have agreed with that. Jesus didn't even really ever say anything negative about the Romans for that matter. And yet this is the nation that certainly the king, the Messiah, would throw off. Oh, and Jesus wouldn't get his stuff organized. Like there was no organization. They weren't raising money to start an army and an uprising. And Jesus kept making all the religious leaders mad. And that wasn't going to work too well because they had so much influence. You got to have a group of people to overthrow Rome and set up a kingdom. And he kept alienating himself from certain people amongst the Jews. So there were things about Jesus that just didn't fit into Judah's picture of how the Messiah would operate. But he just waited and he waited And the rest of the disciples waited as well. At one point, this is weird when you read this now, but James and John actually went to Jesus and they said, hey, we got a question for you. Uh, When you're the king, can I sit on your left? And he would like to sit on your right. I mean, how arrogant is that, right? Like when you're the king, by the way, I know we got these other 10 guys. They don't know we're having this conversation, so we can keep this quiet, but we'll find a place for them somewhere probably. But when you're the king, can I sit on your left? And, And he'd like to sit on your right. They're waiting for a literal, physical kingdom. And Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom, but there is no kingdom. There's no signs of any kingdom. In fact, it looked like things were getting worse and worse and worse, and he gets further and further away from this kingdom. So while the rest of the disciples kind of put up with it and went along with it, there finally came a time for Judas where he just couldn't handle it anymore. He's like, I'm not getting what I want out of this. So he decides to take matters into his own hands, and his agenda... And Jesus' agenda clash one too many times. And instead of saying, hey, I don't understand this, explain this to me, you know, this isn't what I would have done, but you're Jesus, I'm not, you know, or hey, this isn't, the, this isn't the way I thought it would play out, you're the Messiah, I'm not, perhaps you could explain it to me. Instead, Judas decided, you know what, if you're not going to do it my way, then I'm taking over because I'm not getting what I thought I would get out of this deal. So I want to pick up this narrative in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we run into this account uh, where Judas, basically, this is sort of the last straw for him, and that's what this amounts to. Matthew 26, we're going to begin with verse 6. This account is also recorded in the Gospel of John. John gives some different details. John says that Judas was right in the middle of this little interchange that we're going to read about in Matthew 26. Verse 6 says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, I presume that's Simon the former leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. The book of Mark says this alabaster perfume was worth a year's wages. It would be like somebody taking a jar of perfume that's worth 50 grand and dumping it on someone's head. And you can imagine the, what are you doing? kind of response. Like people have to work a whole year or more than a year to make enough money to like buy something like that. What are you doing? Verse 8. When the disciples saw this, let me just pause right there and say the gospel of John says that it was Judas who started the discussion. So when Judas saw this, he stirred up the rest of the disciples. And he's like, hey, look, look what she did. Can you believe that? How are we ever going to get anywhere into this kingdom overthrow thing if every time we have something valuable, they keep using it and giving it away and pouring it on Jesus? Like, there's, this is no way to start a kingdom. 
It says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. In other words, instead of saying, oh, what an incredible gesture of recognition and worship. No, they were mad. Why this waste, they asked. Verse 9. This perfume, we hear this kind of stuff still. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. Again, John says that even though Judas was behind this argument, he wasn't, he wasn't giving money to the poor. John says he's kind of hoarding this money and stealing most of it. Verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you'll not always have me. And that always made the disciples nervous when Jesus used this kind of language. You won't always have me. I won't always be here. I'm going away. And like, wait, wait, wait. I thought there was going to be a kingdom. Like, you keep talking about leaving. How are you going to like throw, overthrow the Romans? He says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. This seemed like out of context, right? Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are talking about her. Verse 14. This is the last straw for Judas. He's like, if you're not going to save the money that, that's given to us, if you're not going to build a war chest, if you're not going to, you know, if you're going to allow this kind of thing to just happen over and over again, I've had enough, like I've seen enough. This is not, you're never going to be Messiah if you keep acting this way. Like we're never going to have a kingdom if you keep acting this way. This makes no sense at all. I'm wasting my time, wasting my life following you. I'm done. So it's one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. It's like, this is it. I've, I've had enough. I've gone along with this as far as I can. Uh, what I'm after and what you're after, Jesus, clearly not the same thing. I've tried and I've tried. I've tried to pressure and influence and force and manipulate and bribe you to be what I want you to be, but you won't budge. I've had it taking matters into my own hands. So within days, Judas learns a very important lesson, and the lesson that some of us have learned or will learn somewhere along the way. Some of us have or will learn it the easy way. Some of us have or will learn it the hard way. Jesus learned, or Judas learned that you can't force God's hand. Like you can't make him do something that he doesn't want to do. And you can't somehow manipulate him or get up beside him and do something in such a way to bypass or sidetrack his will. Like you can't force God's hand. And at some point in your life and at some point in my life, for those of us who've decided to follow Jesus, for those of us who say we really want to be followers of Jesus, eventually there will be a situation in our lives. There'll be a relationship in your life. There'll be a decision in your life, in my life, where our agenda and God's agenda just don't line up. And we'll realize you can't force God's hand. But Judas was determined to have his way, even if it meant betraying the Son of God. And an interesting thing, everybody knows the story of what happened to Judas, because it's legendary. Eventually, he realized what he's done and how foolish he's been. And in the next chapter, in Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Suddenly, after he's had this clash of wills, this clash of agendas, and he's been so angry and he's been so indignant, and after he's made this bad decision, it occurs to him, what a fool I've been. And when he realized that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He says, I've sinned, for I've betrayed innocent blood. Listen to this. What is that to us, they replied. 
That's your responsibility. What is that to us? That's your responsibility, Judas. You made the mistake, you live with it. You decided to turn your back on the one you believed to be the Messiah, you live with it. You decided to betray your rabbi, you live with it. You sold him out, you made a bad decision. Don't come crying to us, Judas, because we got some bad news for you. Your decision and the responsibility of your decision and the outcome and the consequences of your decision, you own it all. You are on your own. So Judas knew he couldn't go running to the Pharisees or the religious leaders. He figured he couldn't go running back to Jesus. Felt like he had no place to go. Verse 5 says, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself. It's not a happy story. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Yeah. Uh, if you're here today and you're a believer, you might say, you know what? I, am, I can identify a little bit because I'm having a bit of a wrestling match with God. There's this thing in my life and I feel like it's, I'm wrestling with God over it and I feel like it's a defining moment for me. There's something I know that God wants me to do or that he doesn't want me to do. And like, it's like, Todd, I think you're right. Like I follow Jesus and I pray and I've seen God answer prayer and I sing the songs on Sunday and all that, but right now I'm up against something and I don't know if I can follow all the way through with this situation and it could be a defining moment for me. I don't know if I'm willing to stay in this marriage. I don't know if I'm willing to get out of this relationship. I don't know if I'm really willing to be the only person in my workplace who operates with these kinds of ethics. I don't know if I can apply these kingdom values to my workplace and my money and all of my relationships, especially the difficult people in my life. I just don't know if I can go the distance. So this is kind of a defining moment for me. And what I want and what God wants are in direct opposition. And it's clear to me now that our agendas are competing in my life like maybe maybe you know that because you just know the scripture or maybe you know that because you're fortunate enough to have somebody in your life to, who's saying hey, hey 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 what are you doing that's not in keeping with being a follower of Jesus that's not right like or maybe it's not a right or wrong thing maybe it's a wisdom thing and that thing you're running toward or that thing that maybe you refuse to run away from maybe it's just not the wise thing for you right now so like come on what are you doing Whatever it is that you're up against, whatever the decision looks like for you, like maybe you've already made your choice and you wish you could go back and, and change it. So now you're trying to figure out how to, how to make it right. And regardless of what all that looks like, if you're here today and you're at a season in your life where your agenda and God's agenda, they just don't line up, then I just want you to listen to three things that I have to say from this story. Because the story of Judas is an extreme example of something that every single one of us um, has faced or is facing or will face at some point. So the first thing is this. That when you say no to Jesus, and don't miss this, like if you're a student or a high, a high school student or a college student or middle school students are over there, I think. But when you say no to Jesus, you are responsible for the outcome of the journey. That's what the religious leaders said to uh, to Judas, what's this to us? That's your responsibility. When you say no to Jesus, you're saying like, I know you're almighty creator God and I know that you know me inside out. I know that you created over 600 kinds of beetles and I know that no two snowflakes are alike and all that's great. And I know the earth is actually relatively small and the sun is like huge. I know all that, but I'm right on this one. Like I'm going my own way. I know better than you. So you're saying this is something I can handle. 
I can control the outcome of my decision. I'm so smart. I am so educated. I'm so wealthy. I'm so influential. I'm so confident. So whatever that I believe that even though I know this is probably the wrong thing to do or very least the unwise thing to do, I'm pretty confident I can control the outcome of this decision. I'm controlling the journey. When you say no to Jesus, you are on your own. But when you follow Jesus, when you say yes to him, as odd and as strange as the journey is sometimes, when you follow Jesus, he takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. But when you say no to him, the outcome of the journey is on your shoulders. And I don't know, but I wonder if in those moments of isolation, when Judas realized, like, I can't go back, I can't undo this thing. I wonder if suddenly, you know, like the group, the crowd, the community I had with the disciples, now, now I've made them my enemies. I wonder if he thought about how many times Jesus said, my peace I'm going to give you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'm the vine, you're the branch, you draw life from me. I'm with you, I'm in you, I'm around you, I'm leading you, I'm comforting you, I'm taking care of you. And all of a sudden for Judas, all of that was no longer applicable to him. And he's on his own and he's in no man's land and he realizes, what have I done? Matthew says he's filled with remorse. There are some decisions that you cannot unmake. And forgiveness is not even the issue. Consequence is the issue. Like when you say no to Jesus, it's, it's about now you've taken responsibility for the outcome of the journey. Second thing, and you may not uh, believe me on this one, or you may think you're the exception to this, but um, I'm just kind of waving a flag of warning here. When you say no to Jesus, I promise you, when you say no to Jesus, you will move in the direction of self-destruction. Destructive behaviors, destructive decisions. You look at Judas, he committed suicide. You're like, yeah, but that's so extreme. Well, I know, but when you say no to Jesus, you, 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 know, you don't just move away from somebody, you move towards something. And as you back away from Jesus because it's too hard and it's not going to work and it doesn't make sense and it's too religious and it's too narrow, I'm telling you, when you move away from the source of life, when you move away from the source of love, when you move away from the source of forgiveness, you move away from the source of grace, you're not moving toward anything good. You're stepping, maybe unknowingly and sometimes knowingly, into self-destructive relationships and destructive behaviors and destructive uh, habits. And like Judas, who came to a point where he realizes, what have I done? I have no place to go. You eventually find yourself there as well because when you say no to Jesus, you say no to everything that makes life worth living. Third thing I want you to hear is this. When you say no to Jesus, it's just a matter of time and you'll be back. You, you might come crawling back. You might come running back. You get to this point, you're like, I wish I hadn't said no. So I've got to find my way back. How do I know this is true? Well, because I see it all the time. Like, I've been around the church and around people who struggle with following Jesus, like, long enough to see this over and over again. Like, if you're a Christian, yeah, God's going dis- to discipline you in that process. 
and he's good, like he's a good, loving, heavenly father. And as such, he's going to discipline you because that doesn't mean punish. It just means he's going to discipline you, bring you back to the right path because he loves you. And it could be that he just lets the natural consequences of your decision be your discipline. Interesting how that works a lot of the time. Uh, maybe that'll be the experience that teaches you the lesson you need to learn. It's what happened to Judas. He betrays Jesus and he's like, oh man, I've made a mistake. I want to go back, but I don't think I can go back. Like, I can't undo this, and I'm not even sure I can go back to Jesus at this point. I've made a mistake. I wish I'd never done that. That's what he said to the man who paid him 30 pieces of silver. The point is this, when the moment of truth comes for you like it did with Judas, when it comes for us, when we've had enough and we realize, you know what, if I continue to do this, this isn't going to lead anywhere good. I just got to lay it down and decide, even if it doesn't make sense, even though I don't like what it's going to cost me, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And when it comes to that point, that issue, that relationship, that decision, like it may not be today, it may be a month from now, maybe a year from now, maybe three or four years from now, when you finally realize when I say no to Jesus, I'm taking responsibility for the outcome of the journey. When I said no to Jesus, I started moving towards destructive relationships and destructive lifestyle and destructive behaviors. Looking back, like I see it now, and now it's been a little while, maybe it's been a long while, and our Heavenly Father is so, so patient, and you're like, I'm ready to come back, maybe with some regret, and with some scars, and with some battle wounds, and some decisions that you just can't unmake and undo, but you're coming back. And when you, here's the thing, though. When we decide from the get-go, from the very first invitation from Jesus, that I'm just going to follow Jesus, and sometimes it's great, Sometimes it's not so great. Sometimes it's beneficial. Sometimes it's sacrificial. Just keep following Jesus because he takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. He's the source of life. He's a source of grace. He's a source of forgiveness. He's everything you ultimately want in life. And it doesn't always make sense. But when there comes that moment in time where your agenda is competing with God's agenda, just keep laying yours down. My prayer for you as a person who attends this church and calls faith community your home, my prayer is that every one of us would say to Jesus what he said to his heavenly father. When Jesus came to that point where he realized he had a conflict of agendas, you're like, what? Yeah, that's right. Even Jesus experienced this thing where his agenda was competing with the father's agenda. The night of his betrayal in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. And you know what the issue was? The issue was you and me. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't really want to go through it. Sound like a good idea at first, but I don't really want to go through with this. I don't want to have to pay the price for sin. I don't want to die for the sins that others have committed. Uh, this doesn't seem fair. I don't think I want to do this. But hey, not my will, your will be done in my life. That, that, that this would be our prayer, right? Knowing that when we pray, not my will, but yours be done, that our Father in heaven takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. Let's pray together. Father, this is so much easier to talk about than it is to live out. So much easier to read about and discuss and to shake our, to nod our heads in agreement than it is to actually go out and do. But we're thankful for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the opportunity to learn things like this lesson from the life of Judah, uh, Judas without 
having to experience that on our own. We're thankful for that. And today, just to know that when we say no to you, we're on our own. When we say no to you, we're going to find ourselves in some destructive behaviors and destructive decision-making, and we're going to take on all that comes with that. That when we say no to you because of your love and your grace and your patience with us, you've given us the opportunity to find our way back. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to follow and to stay on track with what is truly life's ultimate adventure. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.